morning again, and uh, as, as Steve said, a special welcome um, if you are with us for the first time this morning. Uh, we're so excited to have you with us. Uh, my name is uh, Will Duvall, and for the first time now, officially, I can publicly uh, introduce myself as the current associate pastor here at West Hills and the uh, soon-to-be um, new lead pastor in seven short weeks, way too short weeks, so... Um, I just want to take the slightest moment to tell you how sincerely and deeply um, honored and humbled and excited and nervous and, uh, and committed and grateful I am to be uh, your next lead pastor and, uh, and let you know that your confidence and your support and your love, it really means the world to me. So, so thank you. Um, and now that's all I'm going to say about it this morning because I've also been honored with the task of preaching Psalm 119 this morning. Uh, this is one of the greatest psalms in, uh, of all 150 in Scripture. And so we are in a five-week sermon series uh, here at the beginning of 2019 together on the importance of Scripture, of reading it, studying it, discussing it, growing in it, internalizing it, teaching it, applying it. When you lie down, when you rise, all throughout your day, learning to live it as a people of the book, of God's book. And Psalm 19, more than perhaps any other chapter in all of Scripture, gives us a detailed description of what a Scripture-saturated life looks like and means for us and why the Bible is so good and so worthy of our devotion. John Piper points out, almost everybody in the world would agree that if the one true God has spoken, then there will be no lasting happiness for people who ignore his word. But the problem is, very few people really believe that's what the Bible is. Even the most skeptical atheist will admit that if there was a God, and if that God had spoken and revealed himself in the course of human history, then yes, we should probably pay attention. They just don't believe that's what the Bible is. Frankly, based on the way that many church-going Christians today treat the Bible and judging from the dust it collects on our shelves, and the biblically sparse sermons preached by our pastors, one has to wonder if the church today is much different. According to a 2017 Gallup poll, only 24% of Americans believe the Bible is the literal word of God. God spoke, humans recorded it, we can now read it. That's what it is. 26% of Americans believe the Bible is completely man-made, completely fabricated myths. It's the first time ever in our nation's history that Bible skeptics have outnumbered Bible believers. The remaining half of our country is in the middle. The Bible is a sacred text in some sense. God has something to do with it, and it still has some importance for us today, but we definitely shouldn't base our entire lives around a book that was written thousands of years ago. So friends, I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning from personal experience that God's word is everything. It's everything to us. If we give this up, we're left with nothing. We give up the game. Christ, salvation, the gospel, God, our entire faith crumbles to nothing without this. That's why at West Hills, our view of scripture is the first statement you'll find in our statement of beliefs because you don't get the rest of it without this. 
You don't get Jesus without the Bible, God's incarnate word without his revealed spoken word. There is no such thing as Bibleless Christianity. I've tried it. It doesn't exist. This is game, set, and match right here. Now, if that's the case, then there are three questions before us this morning. Number one, what is Scripture? Number two, why is it so good? And number three, what does it accomplish for us? So I want to try and answer each of those questions ten times. And I want to show you from Psalm 19 ten different traits of Scripture with ten corresponding attributes or qualities and then ten distinct functions of Scripture that God has ordained for us through his word. And so if you would, would you please stand with me as you're able, out of respect for the reading of God's word, from Psalm 19, verses 7 through 14, I'll read it for us from the ESV. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep me back, your servant, also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our collective heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we know they will be if they are your words, if we are unpacking your words this morning. So would you empty me of my words? No one here needs to hear my words. They need to hear your word. Father, would you speak in this place through the power of through scripture. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, John MacArthur recognizes in his excellent teaching on Psalm 19 from a sermon uh, back in 2015 from which I'll be borrowing heavily in my sermon, um, and I highly recommend to you that Psalm 19 is really like uh, Psalm 119 in miniature. You know Psalm 119 is the longest uh, chapter of the Bible. It's devoted entirely to celebrating the beauty of God's word. No coincidence there. And our same five Hebrew synonyms for scripture, law, testimony, precepts, commandments, rules, are also repeated there in Psalm 119 in the exact same order. Over and over and over again. Now, I, I have to at least... It, mention to you verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19 that set the context for verses 7 to 14 for us. They're beautiful verses in their own right. I've got them up there on the screen for you. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. I want to highlight them for you, especially 
because of the relationship between these six verses and our eight verses for this morning. I want you to notice that the first half of Psalm 19 is all about God's general revelation in the world, and our second half this morning is about God's special revelation in his word. Do you see that? Verses one through, through six there, God's general revelation through his world, the heavens, the sky, the earth, the sun, and in verses seven through 14 that we just read a moment ago, God's special revelation through the word. And I wanna give you three quick reasons why I think God's special revelation in scripture is even more significant than his general revelation in creation. Number one, it's more personal. Observing the beauty of a sunset might convince someone that there must be a God, but it doesn't tell them very much about his personality, about his nature, his character. To appreciate God's heart, his goodness, his mercy, his love, his will and desire for our lives, we need his word for that. It's more personal. And interestingly, David uses a different word for God in verses one through six than he does in verses seven through 14. In verses one through six uh, that you you saw on the screen a moment ago, David uses the word El, which is really just the Hebrew title for God. Be like calling me human. But, But in our passage, verses seven through 14, God calls him Yahweh. It's his name. I am the one true God, the God of the Bible. It's personal. Uh, Secondly, the word, as opposed to the world, is more direct. Notice the verbs used in verses one through six. Creation declares, it proclaims, it pours forth, it displays. The world reveals, it makes manifest God's truth, but the word is God's truth. This is God's truth. His word is perfect in verse seven. It is sure, it is right. And thirdly, the word is even better than the world because it's more redemptive. Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because it's been shown to them his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since, what? The creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, We're all without excuse. Creation is sufficient to convict us, to show us there is a God, that I'm not him, and that I exist because of him and for him. But creation alone can't teach me how to please him. It can't show me how to live in right relationship to him. For that, I need God's word. Creation is sufficient to convict. Scripture is sufficient to save. So let's study it together. It's a good segue to our first bullet point. Number one, scripture is instruction that is sufficient, giving us new life. In verse one, we hear the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The word law there is the Hebrew word Torah, used to refer to the first five books of the Bible, but it just means instruction. And so it can really refer to all of Scripture insofar as God desires to use all of Scripture to instruct us. That is a key aspect of what Scripture is and intends to do, instruction. So much so that some unfairly paint the Bible as nothing more than a rule book. 
the Bible is so much more than a list of do's and don'ts, and yet it's not less than that. It's more than, than an instruction manual, but it's not less than an instruction manual. It is that too. As MacArthur says, Scripture is God teaching man all that he needs to know to live life to its fullest, a complete explanation of God's will for man's life in time and eternity. And this instruction is perfect. The Hebrew idea here is comprehensiveness, completeness. It's sufficient. It lacks nothing, and it contains everything that is needed. Needed for what? Needed for reviving the soul. The problem isn't that we're basically good people who need a book of instruction to remind us of how to act. It's not even that we're morally neutral people. The problem is that in our natural sinful states, there is nothing good in us, save for the common graces that God imparts to us, our conscience, our capacity for love, his image in which we've been created, but that is all from God. That's, that's nothing inherent to us. There's nothing morally redeemable about us in and of ourselves. We are morally bankrupt, so we're not talking about needing some omega-3 pills. We're not talking about needing a pacemaker. We require a full-on heart transplant. The Hebrew word translated revive there. Meshibat is better rendered converting the soul, transforming the soul. It's not reviving. There's no resuscitation here. There is no chance of CPR working. We need a donor fast. And in his mercy, God promises, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart of flesh. Whose heart? Who's the donor? I will put my spirit within you. He is. Jesus says, unless one is born again, the passage got referenced from John 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you are born of water and of spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. How does God accomplish that? What is the means by which God rebirths us and performs this heart transplant? God recreates us in the same way he created everything in Genesis 1 in the first place. He speaks. It's by the power of his word. God said, and it was so. The power of his word. 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding what? Word of God. His word is sufficient. It lacks nothing and it contains everything needed to accomplish our complete soul transformation. That's why Paul can say, the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be what? Complete, sufficient, whole. Number two, scripture is revelation that is trustworthy, giving us wisdom. Still there in verse seven, we read, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The Bible isn't just law. 
an instruction. It's God's divine self-revelation. It is his testimony. Scripture is his own witness to himself. I love this quote from Tim Keller. Many people think of the Bible as a book of moral teachings with stories sprinkled throughout it to illustrate the teachings. It's a lot better than that. The Bible is a single true story with teachings sprinkled through to illustrate the story. That is primarily what scripture is. It is a story of who God is, of who we are, of the chasm that lay between us and the great lengths to which he has gone to bridge that gulf. It's a testimony. And it's trustworthy revelation. Man's testimony is fallible. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Don't you want a sure bet? A sure bet. Remember Back to the Future too. When Biff from 2015 steals the time machine and he travels back to 1955 with the sports almanac from the future to give to his, his, his younger self so he can get rich betting on games for the next 50 years and you judge him, but wouldn't you be tempted to do the same thing? I mean, if, if you from the future magically appeared out of thin air in your living room this afternoon and handed you a sports almanac for for 2018 to 2068, and you opened a page one and saw Sunday, uh, January 20th, Rams upset the Saints, Chiefs upset the Patriots, former Missouri cross-state rivalry showdown for Super Bowl 53. You're telling me you wouldn't be tempted to bet on those games. (laughs) Listen, we are all looking for a sure bet in life. There's one source for it. It's right here. God promises, my word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He's the only one that can make good on a promise like that. His word is the only sure bet in life. And because it's sure, it is effective to make wise the simple to make us shakam, skilled in living. As Proverbs 9.4 says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And friends, the simple fact of the matter is we're all simple. We are simple-minded folks. We like to think we're smart, got it together people. Can we drop the nice church facade this morning together and admit that we need help? We are in desperate need of help. We don't know what the heck we're doing. I've told y'all before, I am not a handy man. So when my disposal stopped working last week, I tried fixing it on my own. I pressed the buttons underneath, nothing. I, I tried imitating what I'd seen my dad do last time he was in town and, and manually crank it with the Allen wrench. Couldn't get it to turn. Didn't budge. Finally, my dad was back in town for Ellery's birthday. I had to ask him for help. I was using the wrong size Allen wrench. I couldn't even pick out the right tool from the toolbox, much less fix it. That's how lost I was. Friends, that's us. That is us in life. Do you understand? We don't have the slightest clue to live how we ought to live. The Bible says all we like sheep have turned astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We are utterly lost. In fact, Paul says... The Spirit has to help us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought. It's not just that we don't know how to fix ourselves. We don't even know how to pray in the right way to God to ask him to fix us. We need help praying. We can't even find the right tool in the toolbox. 
But God's word is trustworthy. We can go to it in our simple-mindedness, in our foolishness, in our weakness, in our lostness, and we can count on it to be a sure bet, to make us wise. The Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, from his word, come knowledge and understanding, Proverbs 2, 6. We need it not only at our moment of salvation for our soul transformation, but we need it for our continued sanctification at every step of our spiritual growth thereafter. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, it's our pure spiritual milk by which we grow up into our salvation. John 17.17, 17, Jesus prays of the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is true. That's a great segue to point number three. Number three, scripture is truth that is unchanging, giving us joy. Verse eight, we hear the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Here, David is highlighting the doctrinal nature of scripture. MacArthur explains precepts are doctrines. These are not mere suggestions. They're not nice ideas. These are not sort of floating truths that become reality when you existentially experience them. These are absolute truths, absolute principles for behavior, for living life. Everything in the Bible is doctrine. Doctrine simply means truth. And friends, I want you to see how good that is for us, why it rejoices our hearts that in our culture's sinking sand of postmodern relativism where your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and we don't know right from left or boy from girl anymore, that God in his kindness would give us absolute truth as a bedrock to build our lives upon. That is good. That is good for us. Our culture paints precepts and joy as diametrically opposed the idea that rules could bring me joy is utterly foreign to us. We put up with rules as a necessary evil today, but deep down our hearts cry, let it go, let it go, no holding back anymore, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. And so we teach our children to celebrate heroes who break all the rules in the name of self-discovery and expressive individualism. Elsa, Moana, Zootopia, even back to my generations, Disney heroes, Aladdin, Jasmine, Ariel, getting the remakes now. The name of the game is break the rules as long as you stay true to yourself. That is the world's recipe for happiness. And Jesus dares to fly in the face of our culture and claim, happy are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Wait a minute, Jesus. You're, you're trying to tell me that the key to my personal happiness is actually dying to myself and my own selfish desires in order to obey someone else's external absolute precepts and expectations uh, imposed on my life. Yeah, that's pretty much it, friends. It sounded pretty crazy to me for about 28 years until I got miserable enough trying to make myself happy and failing and I decided to give God a chance. paradox of the Christian life is whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. Why? Because Jesus is the author of life itself and he knows how to make us happy better than we do. That's why he came, John 10.10, 10, to give us life to the fullest 
because God's word is good and it's written for our joy. 1 John 1, 4, these things are written that your joy may be full. Jeremiah 15, 16, your word was in me, the joy and rejoicing of my heart. And friends, I can only speak for myself. I can just tell you I've lived chunks of my life for myself, seeking to save my life and make myself happy. I've lived chunks of my life for Christ, seeking to lay down my life in surrender and obedience, trust him to make me happy. And I can tell you that without exception in my personal experience, he gets it right and I get it wrong every single time. Without exception, his truth is unchanging. His precepts are right with a capital R. Number four, his precepts are commands that are clear, giving us sight. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, verse eight says. Scripture doesn't just instruct or guide us It also commands us. It mandates. Again, MacArthur says, Scripture's commands are authoritative. They are sovereign. They are binding. They are non-optional demands by God on man. Disobedience means judgment. Obedience means reward. It's that simple. God says it. We do it. And these commands are pure. That means they're clear transparent, easily understood. Theologians speak of the perspicuity of Scripture. That means it's clarity. Many today question Scripture's clarity. They say it's too old, it's too confusing, it's written in foreign languages by foreign people so different from us that it's totally inaccessible and irrelevant today. God's Word tells us itself that it's clear. It's pure. Are some passages difficult to understand? Sure. 2 Peter 3.16, Peter tells us even he had trouble understanding Paul's writings. Should be great comfort for us. Will Will we comprehend it all fully on this side of eternity? No way. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it's like seeing through a foggy glass window. But can even a child understand the most essential truths communicated by Scripture. God's holiness, our sinfulness, Christ's sacrifice, the faith required for salvation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Matthew 18, 3, all it takes, in fact, is childlike faith because Scripture is very clear. It's very clear. In fact, it's so clear, it's like visine for our spiritual eyes. Scripture enlightens and illumines. It gives us sight. Psalm 119, 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a what? A light unto my path. Ephesians 5, 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. God takes a bunch of people, with no clarity, with no direction, with no vision, stumbling around in the dark and by the illuminating power of his Holy Spirit and the supernatural guidance of his word, he opens our spiritual eyes to see, to see him for who he is, us for who we are, and Christ as the great mediator for what he's done for us. I once was blind, but now I see. Friends, we're lost in the world without him stumbling around in the darkness without a purpose, but his commands are clear. They open our eyes to see the way we ought to go. Number five, 
Scripture is worship that is pure, giving us permanence. Verse 9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord, it's a phrase that refers to worship, to awe, reverence. And it parallels these other five synonyms for scripture, law, testimony, precepts, uh, commandments, rules. And so I interpret it here as likewise referring to scripture itself. After all, Proverbs 1.7 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, and we've already established that God's word can, is the only thing that can truly make us wise. Now, it might seem odd to think of the Bible itself as worship, but that's exactly what Jesus affirms about Scripture in John 5.39 when he rebukes the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus says, don't you know that the Bible was written as a worship manual in my honor? You wanna know how to worship God properly, to worship God purely, to fear the Lord cleanly? Here, here's your worship manual. Romans 12.1, what is is true worship, Paul says? Worship that is holy and acceptable to God. It is presenting your bodies as living sacrifices, surrendering the rights over your life, over to the one true king, fearing the Lord, submitting to his word and his will and his way in your life. That's pure worship. Sure, sing songs to him. Yes, be moved to tears by a good sermon. That's all fine, but worship is action. It is sacrifice. It is obedience. James 1.27, pure religion is what? To visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. Obey the word. That kind of worship endures. That kind of worship is not fleeting emotionalism. It's not sending good vibes God's way. fearing him, it's revering him, honoring him, and it endures. Friends, don't you want something in life that endures? Don't you want something that that lasts? If you were an important person sitting in this room this morning, a hundred years from now, one human being might remember your name. Most of us, within a generation or two of your death, will be completely forgotten. Second Peter tells us the current heavens and earth are going to be burned up and dissolved. Is there nothing in life that is permanent, nothing that lasts to hold on to? Isaiah 40, surely people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. You want something that lasts Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. Friends, this, this is the only thing that's permanent. Where do you invest your time? Where do you invest your money? Where do you invest your life? Are you building your life around material success, around earthly riches, around a good reputation, around a loving family, around personal happiness, all good things that are gonna burn up and dissolve and be forgotten. 
Root yourself in the one thing that is permanent. Number six, Scripture is verdicts that are right, giving us a standard. Verse nine says, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Judgments is a better translation than rules. This refers to God's verdicts, his rulings, and God's judgments. What he deems to be right is always right because God is himself the standard by which right and wrong are judged. Moreover, the very existence of a right as opposed to a wrong is one of the strongest evidences of God's own existence. Share this argument with your atheist and agnostic friends. Premise one, morality is a set of commands. That's all morality is. It's a a set of things we ought to do. Premise two, commands are only as authoritative as their commander. If I demand you give me 40% of your paycheck, you laugh at me. But when the government demands that, you do it because they've got the authority to command that. Premise three, morality is ultimately, objectively, and universally authoritative. Now, your friends might take issue with this point. They say, no, no, no. It's not objective. What's right for, and wrong for, for, for me might be different than what's right and wrong for you. And so you have to press them a little bit and ask, so you're telling me that if you walked out of here and saw someone torturing a baby, you would not try and stop them. And they've either got to admit that they would in fact impose their morality on someone else, and maybe it's a little bit more absolute than they thought it was, or else they think that torturing babies can be okay for some people. Morality isn't created by society. Torturing babies isn't wrong because our government says it's wrong. If you got in that same DeLorean time machine and went back in time and saw an Aztec warrior getting ready to sacrifice a baby on an altar to the fertility gods, you would try and stop him too, even though that action was applauded in his society. Why? Because morality is absolute. It is objective. It is universal. Torturing babies is just as wrong 3,000 years ago as it is today. Therefore, morality must have an absolute, universally authoritative commander outside of time and space and society who must be the standard. That's God. We call him God. And you might pause at that point in the argument and ask your friend, don't you want there to be a standard? I mean, do you really want to believe that Hitler and Mother Teresa met the same fate when they died? some universalist version of heaven that's good for everybody? Don't you want our actions in this life to matter? Our lives to matter? God's righteous judgments, Psalm 19 tells us, and the standard that they set for us, they make our lives and our actions meaningful. Number seven, scripture is a treasure that is valuable, giving us true riches. David says they're more desired to to us than gold, even much fine gold. 
And we've touched on this already, and so I just want to highlight a few supporting scriptures for you just how valuable God's word is. Job 23, 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Proverbs 2, 1 through 4, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, seek it like silver, search for it as if it were hidden treasure. Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure, like silver refined in the furnace. And then Psalm 119, there's so many here we could just dig into. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches, David says. Verse 72 of the same Psalm 119, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 127, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. They're a treasure. They're a treasure and a delight. Number eight, scripture is a delight that is sweet, giving us satisfaction. They're sweeter than than honey, than drippings of the honeycomb, he says. Scripture is the guilty pleasure you don't have to feel guilty about. You know how all your favorite foods All the foods that taste the best are horrible for you and nothing but empty calories. Listen, scripture has got all the taste and it's opposite of the empty calories. It is is real, it's filling, it's satisfying, it's substance, it's nourishment. There can be so much depth and meat in just one verse of scripture that it fills you for the whole day. Sometimes that's the danger in it. Like Gary reminded us last week, we do a little five-minute devotional and we think we're good for the day. And we really can't. We can read one verse and chew on it all day long because it's so filling. But here's the thing. Food that good, food that satisfies with just one bite, is that ever food that you want just one bite of? I'm reminded of, of the Lay's commercials from years ago. Bet you can't eat just one. Of course I can't because your chips are 90% air. Of course I need more than one. It's completely unfilling and unsatisfying. And yet, think about your favorite, rich, decadent dessert. That dessert that you only need one bite of, right? Do you want just one bite? No. You want as much as you can cram in your mouth. My wife gives her mom a hard time because she buys Haagen-Dazs ice cream that has like a thousand grams of fat in one bite. But my mother-in-law justifies it because she literally eats one bite of ice cream. She will get out the carton and eat one bite of ice cream because her philosophy is, I'd rather have one bite of the good stuff than eat a whole bowl full of the, the, the fluff, the air. She's got a lot more self-control than I do. When I get hog, especially when it's hog and dog, especially when it's the good stuff, I want a whole bowl, right? That's how most of us are. That, is how, that should be our approach to scripture. It's good and it's filling, but it's so good that you just keep eating. God says, you don't have to stop. Come to the table, eat your fill. Psalm 119, 16, I delight in your statues. Verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. Verse 47, I I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 70, I delight in your law. 
Uh, Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I need something that brings me joy regardless of my circumstances, David says. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 111, your testimonies, they're the joy of my heart. Verse 143, your commandments are my delight. Verse 159, I love your precepts. Verse 167, I love them exceedingly. Take delight in God's word. Verse nine, scripture is a guardrail that is freeing, giving us life. It's a guardrail. Verses 11 through 13, we won't reread them all, but read them there in your your Bible. Moreover, by these commandments is your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward. Uh, we discussed this too, so I'll be brief here. Our, our culture conditions us to treat rules as inherently restrictive and oppressive. Are guardrails restrictive? Yeah, that's kind of the point. Are they oppressive? I guess if you want your car upside down in the ditch, then yes, they, they restrict your freedom and encroach on your personal freedom to flip your car. But I'll tell you what, Polly and I toured Colorado last fall for our 10-year anniversary, and I have never appreciated guardrails so much in my life as I did driving through those narrow mountain passes. It was freeing. There was peace of mind peeking over the edge, knowing that there's a guardrail there between me and certain death. 1 John 5, 3, his commandments are not burdensome. They're not oppressive. On the contrary, they are liberating. David says, they free me from presumptuous sins, verse 12. They free us from sin's dominion over us. Romans 6, Paul says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to a standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. We've all got a master. The question is, who is yours? Who do you serve, yourself or Christ? Sin or righteousness? God's word frees us from sin to find new life in a new master, in Christ Verse 22 of Romans 6, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Finally, number 10, scripture is our response that is pleasing, giving us relationship with God. David closes with a prayer in verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. My words, my thoughts, my actions, my everything, David says, my whole life, may my entire being be offered up in response to your word as a humble sacrifice of obedience. That's his prayer. And how do we know if our lives are acceptable and pleasing to God? It's when they're lived in accordance with his revealed word right here. 
That's why this is everything. It's our worship. It's our response to him. John 14, 23, Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. We're called to love God. We prove our love. We show our love. We demonstrate in our response by keeping his word. But are you ready for the twist ending here in the conclusion? You can't keep his word. You take this whole sermon about how good scripture is, how good it is to obey it, wrap it up, and you can't do it. Sorry. You will not prove your love for God in your own unwavering obedience to him because you will fail. You will fail to glorify him with the words of your mouth. You will fail to honor him with the meditations of your heart many times, probably every single day of your life. You need more than a book, friends. We need more than a book. We need more than instruction and precepts and a standard and a guardrail. We need a savior. We need the author of the manual. We need the fulfiller of the law. We need the standard bearer himself to willingly lay down his life and trade his righteousness for our unrighteousness. That's exactly what Jesus has done. Even with the guardrail, we need someone else to drive the car. Jesus died to be your Savior and your Lord, to offer you new life, to offer you joy, sight, freedom, relationship with God. He is the greatest treasure. He is your delight. He is your rock and your redeemer. And the acceptability of the words of your mouth and the acceptability of the meditation of your hearts this morning will be judged by God the Father according to your response to his Son. Jesus asks in his word, who do you say that I am? Your response to that question will determine everything. Let's pray. Would you take a moment to respond to God's word in your own heart, in your own meditations? Father, your word is good. Father, we don't deserve it. There's nothing inherent in us that is good that would merit the grace of your guidance, your instruction, your precepts, your good rules, your judgments, your life-giving, treasure-filled delighting word. We don't deserve it. 
you are a good, good Father, to give us that in your grace and your mercy. And yet, Father, we confess again this morning that we don't measure up to its standard, that we don't treasure it as we ought, that we don't delight in your word as much as our favorite dessert, that we don't love you by obeying your commands, that we fail all the time. And yet, you didn't stop with your revealed, written word. You looked down and saw something worth loving, someone worth redeeming, and you were willing to pay the ultimate price by sending your incarnate, enfleshed, personal, even more personal than your word, word, Jesus, the living and abiding word, the word before creation that was co-eternal with the Father. To lay down his life for us, for sinners, while we were yet sinning. And he asks us this morning, who do you say that I am? Father, if there's anyone here that has not responded to Jesus before with their own personal, humble cry of repentance and plea of faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If there's anyone who needs to respond in faith, to your word, to Jesus this morning. Father, I pray as we sang earlier that you would give them faith to know that you're good, to trust what you say, that their flesh is weak, that your spirit can be strong in them if they will but surrender and receive you by faith this morning. Father, I pray that for all of us this morning, your word would not return void, but would accomplish that which you purpose for it, our sanctification. Would you sanctify us in your truth this morning? Would you use my own fallible broken words, speak through them with the power of your word to uplift, encourage, support, strengthen, edify, sanctify your people this morning for your glory. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.